the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. Joining me this week from the band Foreigner, it is guitarist Mick Jones. And on the other side, from the band UB40, it is Ali Campbell. They have a new album out called A Real Labor of Love. But uh, first, I would like to introduce again... Alan Niven, former manager of Guns N' Roses and Great White. Good day, Sir Alan. How are you? I'm very well, Mitch. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm in, you know, I'm in sprinting mode today, as we can tell. <laughs> trying, trying to go through this as fast as possible. No, I'm kidding. Uh, always a pleasure, by the way, just to to say hello and and reconnect. I I got a lot of great feedback for your comments on the Thin Lizzy and um, Tony Banks episode. So I figured, okay, let's do this again. And uh, well. Well, thank you. I, I rather wondered if I was the only person in your Rolodex who was old enough to have a personal response to some of these bands. No, and, and of course, I've gotten heavily back into Genesis since that interview. It's, it's funny how these interviews impact my listening habits. Now I, I've been, I've got the song Misunderstanding on a loop in the back of my brain. It's, 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 it's hey, rediscovering great music. Now, speaking about uh, great music, Foreigner is hitting the road with White Snake and Jason Bonham's Led Zeppelin Evening. And of course, they're all playing the greatest hits, including uh, Here I Go Again, Whole Lot of Love, Say You Will, and one of my personal favorites, I Want to Know What Love Is. Um, being part of the sort of great white Guns N' Roses, sort of heavier hard rock, did you find yourself at a time listening to a foreigner or a UB40? Well, obviously, foreigner at the end of the 70s was very, uh, very significant. And at that point, with uh, Led Zeppelin fading away, they were about the cutting edge of uh, hard rock for a while there. Um, and a lot of great songs. And of course, Lou Graham has one of those voices that is just amazing. Um, but with foreigner, I've got to say, um, you mentioned I Want to Know What Love Is. I remember going to Music Plus with Mark Kendall, the guitar player from Great White, to buy uh, the new Foreigner release, Agent Provocateur. Uh, and I think this is, gosh, way back in 1984, on the day it was released. And we took it home and, and wanted to hear what they were doing. And, you know, there's that certain amount of um, competitive comparison that you put into listening to... Um, your peer groups and people you aspire to be peers of. And we listened to this song and were floored, absolutely floored. And Kendall and I looked at each other and we just realized that the bar had been raised and it was above our heads. And I was also really happy because it's got a, a soul and an emotion in that song that took the genre out of the let's just, you know, play it being uh, cock rockers like, you know, Dave, David Lee Roth was doing at the time. And that impacted me strongly as well. I was really pleased that um, somebody would write a song like that. I mean, that song in my book is one of the best ever written and one I wish I'd written myself. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Now, with Great White, especially that, that had ballad, you know, Save Your Love and stuff, was there a time where you thought, okay, 
I'm going to write a response to I want to know what love is or I want to write another or I want to try to write a song just like it? Well, you never want to write a song just like it. But I will say that looking back and remembering, uh, there was a song that Michael and I wrote called Mother Mary that in a way was not like, um, but informed by, and intended to be a little bit of an answer of, well, maybe this is love. And in that song described a relationship that I thought might be worthy of being called a, a true loving relationship. Of course, the absolute irony of it was that I later found out that the person I wrote it about didn't deserve the sentiment. And I kind of put the brakes on putting the song out for emotional reasons. And we held it off the album that uh, we were recording at the time. And I told Michael, oh, we'll do it later. And, you know, it got shelved. I, I think they re-recorded it and put out another version later after I left the band. But there is what we recorded but didn't finish. Um, and it's like a demo. And if it's of interest to your Westwood One listeners, um, they yeah. can hear it and see what they think. Oh, I'd love to uh, to give them some exclusive content like that because um, t- to me there's always a, a great interest in sort of songs in their infancy and a work in progress and just to hear the band in, in, in a sort of a fluid state, you know, just creatively putting something down, it would, would be great. So, yeah, um, in terms of guitarists, though, for Mick Jones, he's also produced, you know, Van Halen's 5150 and stuff. How do you sort of match him up? Because, you know, when you look at a Slash or you look at a at an Eddie Van Halen, there's a lot of Flash, there's a lot of balls, there's a lot of blues. Uh, Mick isn't a flashy guitar player, but you certainly aren't going to say that he's not a good player. He, he's he's very unique in what he does, right? Well, you know, Mick came out of, I mean, the, the most notable band before Foreigner for him was a band called Spooky Tooth. And if I remember correctly, he even had Gary Wright of Dreamweaver fame in that band. Um, so you've got two very strong songwriters right there. And I think the thing that I respect most about Mick as a player is that he's concise and that he applies his playing to the emotion and the content of the song, and he keeps it within that emotion and context. I think he's really, really good at that. Oh, he he really is. And what I like about Foreigner is the fact that it really comes down to just great songs, because they're not flashy, they're not, you know, they don't have that gimmick like a kiss with the makeup, and they don't have all kinds of crazy stories about you know, um, I don't want to say strippers. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, groupies and stuff. They're, but yet, their songs is just what has. Oh, they have a... song. They they have a song about a dirty white boy. Um, true, true. I I I'd suggest this. I think the power of his writing and the brilliance of um, the concise way that he put together rock and roll songs is absolutely manifest in the fact that Foreigner are out there playing now, and Mick is the only original member, but people still want to go and hear the songs. And believe you me, I do understand there are days when Mick goes, you know, I can't make it today, so you're watching Foreigner without Foreigner being there. But it's about the songs, and people want to go and hear those songs. And what is interesting to me at the moment is that, and apparently the latest name for a generation is Gen Z, 
uh, are beginning to really find old 80s songs, you should check out how many um, views and downloads there have been of Toto's Africa. It's like there's a generation who are suddenly going around to the beginning of the 80s and going, oh my God. And I think they're going to find Foreigner. And I think you're going to find songs like I Want to Know What Love Is are going to have an even more extended life and relevance to people. Yeah, it really is. And and the one thing that has helped extend them is the presence of Kelly Hansen on vocals and Jeff Pilsen. Both of them have driven this band and have just kept it going because if Kelly Hansen didn't have that voice that you could buy into and believe and say, yep, that's the song, it wouldn't have worked. And what they've done is magical. Oh, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, Jeff, I think, is probably... I think it's fair to say I might describe him as the most healthy and fit man in rock and roll that I've ever known. Um, I obviously knew Jeff back in the Dorkin days, but he is a wonderful spirit and a very, um, very determined to keep himself healthy and, in good, and of good soul. He's a really good guy. Oh, oh, Jeff is the greatest and and just so talented. I mean, he he can play every instrument. He can produce. He's he's a he, he's a not a technophobe, but a technophilia. I mean, he just he just anything that's technology, he will learn and just uh, anyway. Anyway, shall we shall we move on to uh, to the interview with the one and only Mick Jones? How does that sound? I think listening to Mick is a far better idea than listening to me. Well, I well, I don't think I agree with that. I think listening to both of you is very compelling. But uh, here is the one and only. Mick Jones. We are speaking with guitarist Mick Jones of the band Foreigner. They are on tour this summer with Whitesnake and Jason Bonhams for a Led Zeppelin evening. Uh, Mick, a great, great pleasure uh, to speak with you today. Oh, likewise. Yes. Yeah, so let, let us get started with the, the summer tour, the Jukebox Heroes tour with, with Whitesnake. Talk to me about getting these bands together and, of course, having Jason there, because Jason, of course, spent some time with uh, Foreigner uh, years ago, mm-hmm. um, just talk to me about this this lineup and what what fans can expect. Well, um, as far as we're concerned, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, we we were lucky to be able to put this together with um, David Coverdale. You know, he's he's in fine voice and um, ready to rock. Uh, as is Jason, who was on our previous tour last year. Um, and I'm looking forward to, it's going to be a pretty ballsy evening, I think. And, uh, it certainly worked very well last year. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be updating, uh, our presentation a bit. And, um, you know, it's looking great already. The sales for pre-sales are very high. And there's a lot of excitement around this, so um, I couldn't be happier. Yeah, there really is a lot of excitement. And of course, uh, just before that, I'll be seeing you in uh, Ottawa, Canada with Chilliwack, one of those great bands from, from yesteryear that that is back. And, oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a great evening. Um, okay. Let me t- let me take you back to October of 2017. Uh, you played that show at the Soaring Eagle Casino in uh, Michigan, 
and Dennis mm-hmm. Elliott, Al Greenwood, Ian McDonald, and of course Lou Graham and uh, Rick Willis. I can't forget it. Rick Wills, I should say, uh, joined okay. you on stage. Um, talk to me about the importance of that moment, and does it sort of bring a closure to to the you know the the reunion request from people, or does it sort of open a new chapter for for Foreigner? Well, um, both of those things, I think. Um, it was something that, you know, Lou and I had sort of, um, I think it began when we were uh, inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame a few years back. Uh, we got together, you know, we had to, we decided to do uh, a couple of songs acoustically. And um, quite honestly, you know, it brought the house down. And uh, I think both of us sort of, it made us sort of reflect a little bit on what we had and what wonderful moments we'd had together, you know, and um, it was very emotional. And uh, that's kind of where where the um, we picked up the relationship a bit more after that. And uh, gradually, you know, we, we figured it would be great if we could do something like this for the fans. So we launched into it and uh, it was very successful. Um, the band, the old and new members got on like a house on fire, as did Lou and our current singer, um, Kelly Hansen. So it was kind of magical in a way. I just couldn't yeah. quite uh, figure it, you know. But um it really did. It, it really was very emotional and uplifting. It really was. Uh, talk to me, if you can, for a second about both singers, because Lou really was the voice of Foreigner through the 80s and 90s, and just he, mm-hmm. he sits in fans' hearts like you couldn't believe. But Kelly Hansen came in and not only lived up to expectations, surpassed expectations, and really helped bring the fa- the band forward in the, in, in the later 2000s, Talk to me about sort of, and I don't want to say it's luck, but but I'll call it, you know, your luck in having these two superb, superb talents. Well, um, it, it is. I'm very, um, very fortunate in that way. Uh, I think this, the just the nature of the, the songs, um, the range it takes to sing them, uh, and the depth emotionally to, you know, put them across. It almost requires more than one singer in a way, but um, both of them could obviously carry the set. So really, I think, uh, you know, Lou and I, as I said earlier, have got, it made us really think about things and um, and the thought about, uh, you know, perhaps um, doing this uh, on a bit more of a frequent basis. Uh, the crowd seems to enjoy it. Uh, everybody in the band enjoys it. Uh, Lou, I know, has had a ball with it. And um, it's just funny how life takes these little twists and turns. And, uh, and at the moment, we're on a good twist and a good turn. Yeah, you really are, and and as yeah. a fan myself, I'm super excited by this. I think uh, it's just nice to see uh, the guys come back uh, there. Uh, 2009, Can't Slow Down, was the last 
sort of album of new material. Is there talk of a, of a new album? And and would you consider having Lou come on and sing a couple of songs or sing half of it? Where are you on the new music thing? Because we, we know that Foreigner can go out and call a tour with Whitesnake or with whoever and play the hits and the fans will show up. You don't need it. But is there sort of that artistic need to make a new album? Yeah, there are some um, several ideas in the works. Uh, we have, we've really just taken a sabbatical, really, for the last few months. And, uh, you know, we're getting back, you know, to uh, back in the saddle, as it were, which we've been doing for the last few years. And we have a couple of uh, tracks We've had mulling around for a little while, and uh, Lou and I have been listening to some old ideas that we had. There's a there's possibility of a chance of incorporating these in whatever format we decide to release it. It might even be an EP, you know. Um, but we're, we're gathering material as, as, as we speak. I'm certainly looking forward to that. Um, I just want to take you back to the, the four album uh, years ago. You, You've been known to do production, including Van Halen's 5150 and Bad Company. Um, but you also had your hand in the four album with Robert Mutt Lang, famous, of course, for working yeah. with Def Leppard and working with Brian Adams and so on and so forth. Uh, talk to me about uh, producing your own albums and then working alongside uh, Mutt Lang, who, who just is one of these out-of-these-world produ- uh, producers. Well, um, we... we... Mutt had um, actually applied for the job, as it were, um, for the uh, Head Games album, actually. And um, it, some, for some reason, it didn't quite work out schedule-wise or something. But um, when it came around to... You know, I had, obviously, I was very interested, intrigued by the, the thought of working with him. And um, when it came time... We uh, we met up in New York, actually for the second or third time, I think it was, and um, started the ideas that I'd accumulated, you know, coming up to that, the start of that album. And, um, you know, we it was almost sort of a mirror image in a way, because we were both pretty intense in the studio, we had definite ideas, and we had to learn to, um, you know, to work together uh, and to play together. And um, it ended up being a, you know, a very competitive sort of atmosphere in the studio. But given a little time and everybody settled in, it started to become really evident that uh, we kind of made this, the right choice. And uh, I learned a lot from Mark, and I believe he may have possibly learned quite a bit from me too. So um, it was it was a great exchange, and uh, with its ups and downs, but primarily the uh, the strength of the album was was what we were after, and uh, I think we achieved it. And um, you know, great experience. He's a great guy. He's uh, He's uh, an all-around musician, vocalist, everything. So he knows, you know, he's he knows what he's doing. 
great experience. And um, there you go. He's, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The fact there were tears at the end when we <laughs> when we when we finished, basically. So uh, all good. Yeah, it, it it really was all good. Um, you're also known as a primary songwriter for Foreigner, having written most of the greatest hits, if not all of the greatest hits. Yet on the solo front, you've only put out one album, the uh, Mick Jones album in 1989. Uh, talk to me about that solo album at the time. What sort of compelled you to do it? And, and why haven't you felt the same urge to do a second one and a third one and just sort of have that Mick Jones brand a part of, uh, you know, from the Foreigner brand? Well, to tell you the truth, uh, the motivator for doing that album at that point was that I had time on my hands and uh, Blue was um, releasing his second album, I guess. And I figured, well, maybe I'll just mess around with uh, perhaps doing some songs myself. And uh, that's really how it, how it started. And, uh, you know, it was more of a, it, it enabled me to stretch out a little bit here and there and uh, work with a lot of great musicians. Um, but really, at the end of the day, I, I, I'm, I'm more of a band guy. You know, I, I, uh, I thrive off the interplay with the band and uh and and it sort of showed me that no matter how good anything is it's, it's never quite as strong as the band and uh so it was more of a distraction than anything at the time uh i needed to get a few things off my mind too and um i get frequently asked about when that second album was going to emerge but not on the horizon at the moment, but uh, who knows, you know. Do you look back at that album with, with, with fondness, or do you look back at it with like, oh, I should have kept this as a foreigner song, or I should have done this, or how do you sort of look back at, at that time? Well, I think it was it enabled me to, to um, experiment a little bit. Uh, it was um, it wasn't meant to be a foreigner album. You know, it was definitely... I wanted to sort of explore a few other avenues, and um, so I had no regrets at all. I, I think uh, it was it was just the right move to make at the right time, and uh, you know, although it wasn't um, a, a big success or anything, it was certainly had some uh, more personal moments in there, and uh, and. Um, you know that that's what really what the aim was it was just to sort of do something and present it and uh, you know I, I still get a lot of questions and people coming up you know autograph seekers with that album and um, I look and I I kind of think well you know there's at least a few hundred people who've heard this. <laughs> And uh, exaggerating, but um, but it's a fun album. It really is. Yeah, I mean, uh, it wasn't meant to be groundbreaking, or you know, as for as much as you can plan on that kind of event happening. 
it was just off the cuff, a little bit more personal maybe than I had um, been doing with uh, Foreigner. And uh, uh, it's not meant to compete or to do whatever, you know, it was just uh, a fun little thing. It really was. Um, being in Montreal, I get exposed to uh, a lot of French music, in, including uh, Johnny Holiday, who uh, passed away at the end of 2017. You had a chance mm-hmm. to 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 write with him and work with him and 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 play on his, you know, play with him. Uh, talk to me about Johnny, because he's not so well known uh, to a lot of the, my English listeners, but for us here, uh, he really was sort of the the French Elvis, as as the nickname would suit him well. Well, c'était mon grand frère. Absolument. <laughs> et j'ai beaucoup appris avec Johnny. Uh, you know, he took me under his wing uh, and provided me with the opportunity to start writing, recording in Paris, you know, in London, in New York, in uh, a lot of lot of very cool places and. He exposed me to a lot of uh, different musicians, you know, through doing his projects. Uh, I became a producteur, l'écrivain, everything, a lot, lot of everything I learned. Le tout, right? The everything. Tout. Tout moi, oui. Et à part ça, il était un grand ami. You know, la vie avec lui c'était assez uh, fou à l'époque. Um, so I really learned to rock and roll, you know, with him. And uh, it just, you know, I love him so much. As I said, he was uh, mon grand frère. He always will be. And um, je pense beaucoup à lui. Uh, et j'avais grande chance de to pass five or six years with me. And it prepared me for what I was going to after that. So, um, sorry, I'm talking a bit of franglais here. No, it's all, it's, it's all great. Uh, but I do have a question about the songwriting, because when you look at songs like Je suis né dans la rue or A tout cassé, and where you have some credit on it, are... What is the songwriting process like? Are are you writing lyrics in French for him, or are you just sort of bringing in production ideas? So just sort of, um, you know, uh, elaborate for me what the process was, because I know, you know, as an as an English speaker and writing songs for for foreigner in English, it must be simple. And it's got to be. Is there sort of a different way to approach this? And, and I know it sounds sort of a like a silly question, but how did you approach writing in a foreign language? Well, um, I, uh, although I, you know, I was speaking pretty fluent French at the time, I didn't feel that it would be too wise to take that on as well, you know, the French lyrics. So sometimes we would get um, an idea and throw it around with one or two of the writers of the the top writers in Paris at the time, um, but um, song lyrical writing in French is a whole different kind of a fish, and I didn't feel that I quite had the, the command of 
of French that I would require to be able to do that successfully. Not not so much uh, more more really to do with um, you know the the expression the fitting the fitting the uh, the words to to a, a song that you know we had written in English basically. It was just I I learned a tremendous amount as far as uh, production. Johnny gave me a um, a free hand really. Uh, to go and travel to London to do uh, sessions for the songs we'd written, uh, get to play with, at the time, we were session men, uh, Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, a lot of uh, American musicians. I actually got to spend time with um, Otis Redding at one point. And, um, you know, so... I kind of did my growing up in in the background a little bit in France, and you know, at a certain point, I was doing very well in France, obviously, and uh, I I kind of was still curious about seeing if I could um, crack something in England or and then America, of course. Um, and that preparation, you know, Johnny Johnny was. Very much, uh, he was, you know, pretty fluent in English, and uh, you know, we had, we used to have a lot of fun with that. Um, but um, yeah, so overall, it was uh, a, a, a huge learning curve for me. Yeah. I never really had. Sorry, I, it really was because it it really was a development of of who you were and what you were doing at the time. As as a fan looking out, I see it sort of as like one of those turning points where it it how can I put this? It matured you to that next level to really be um, a performer and, a, and and I mean you correct me if I'm wrong, but it just seemed that that that's one of those moments in life where it's just like yeah okay this is where he went from Mick Jones to yeah. the Mick Jones right <laughs> you know <laughs> from Mickey Jones at one point. <laughs> Back then, um, yeah, it, it was certain uh, grand education for moi, and then, souvent, j'avais le quand j'approchais quelque chose, j'avais la voix de Johnny et l'expression, and playing in front of huge crowds with him, and and so it was it was great, you know. I, I learned to employ some of Johnny's stagemanship and um, the way he used to be able to to relate to the crowds, you know, the kind of, um, you know... That swagger. The, the swagger. Yeah. The, um, you know, you know, that really prepared me. And I would often um, employ, look back and think, how would Johnny have handled this <laughs> situation? Yeah. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I still do. You know, I, I find myself still, you know, using him as uh, as um, a kind of a light, you know, to, to somehow follow and aspire to what, you know, nobody could get close to what Johnny had the success that he had in France. 
But I guess at, at a certain point, as I said earlier, I needed to um, you know, eventually move on from that and go back to England and regroup a bit. And then um, the rest sort of kind of sort of fell into place. And fell into place very nicely. Now, uh, and by the way, yeah, it, it always good. it always amazes me how somebody like Johnny Holiday can have such can be so revered and so influential in 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 a part of the world. You know, if you're looking at Quebec or in France or in Belgium, where there's a, a francophonie, as we say, and yet yeah. there's a whole part of the world that just has no clue, and it's just it's just so so strikingly bizarre that. This yeah. this man has this power, and then in other places. Um, just quickly, because I know we only had half an hour. Uh, another moment that that at least to me must have been big in your development as a, as an artist was the Spooky Tooth album. You broke my heart, so uh, I busted your jaw. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to me about about that album and and coming in and and replacing Grovesner. Luther Grosner. Grosner. It's, yeah. My, my, my tongue wasn't meant for that. For, for that. Um, yeah, no. It is a bit of a twist. Yeah. It is. But but talk to me about that, because this was sort of the next step where it was like, okay, I've done these bands and I've done these songs, but now, okay, we're, 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 we're climbing the ladder, and or at least that's how I see it. Um, just talk to me about that album and, and what it meant to you career-wise and putting you on that path to eventually get to Foreigner. Well, um, meeting up with Gary Wright uh, was very timely. We we met um, in uh, Paris, actually. Uh, Gary had come over to um, work and write the song for Johnny, which ended up with, you know... Uh, um, sorry, let me start that again. And what was the question? <laughs> Uh, well, well, the question was just about the Spooky Tooth album. Uh, you broke my oh, heart, right. so, cool. and, and yeah. sort of, sort of, how did that sort of help move you in the next, uh, uh, you know, stratosphere of your career? How did that sort of advance yeah. you? There you go. Well, to me, it was it was um, a, a huge event, really, because here I was back in England, and um, you know, and sort of with the, I set myself the task of. Um, you know, um, starting from scratch again, really. I didn't didn't really have a name in England at that point. And um, I felt, you know, that that was vital for me to have that um, connection with my, my, my birthplace and my the home of my musical tastes and, uh, and, and to be chosen to follow in Luther's footsteps. Um, I, I admired his guitar playing, his sound, uh, and um, I just felt very honoured at the time to be uh, to be chosen to um, replace him. And uh, it meant a lot prestige-wise for me. Uh, that in turn started to open doors for me. And um, it's just a question of, really, I didn't realise it, but that was the beginning of the ride to eventually... Uh, you know, putting Foreigner together. And, yeah. um, you know, Carrie and I wrote well together. We had the same musical taste, and um, I learned from him, and I believe he learned some stuff from me too. Uh, so it was it was stimulating. And um, uh, as I said, the beginning of um, the climb to even greater 
things. So, uh, but, um, I, I guess I discovered a certain, a different way that I started to write in English and, and to, um, you know, to really sort of get tuned into where I, where I was headed, uh, using, you know, all sorts of my experiences in, uh, in Europe with Johnny, with, with, um, Spooky Tooth, uh, with um, six months playing with Leslie West of uh, Mountain. Yeah. Um, they were pretty crazy experiences, actually, but um, all part of, you know, growing up and getting getting back into the Anglo-American uh, uh, way of, of playing, performing, and writing, and things that uh, had initially... Uh, brought me into music in the be- in the beginning. Different player, different you know people like Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly, and so I had a lot of I had a lot of those uh, those kind of ideas embedded in me, and uh, I had to sort of go through a little search in personal search, and uh, in as much as um, you know finding. Going back to zero and finding my, uh, getting reorientated to to um, to really sort of proceed and uh, reach for the uh, moon. Yeah, and of course la lune, la lune, and and those times yeah. with uh, with Leslie West. What a what a fantastic guitarist. I mean, uh, yeah. You think back to to Mississippi Queen and all that. Just mm-hmm. wow. Um, Mick, great pleasure. I know we only had half an hour, so but thank you for today. Absolute pleasure. And uh, March 23rd, you are at the um, TD Place in uh, Ottawa. I will be there, and I yeah. will find yeah. I will find you with White Snake somewhere this summer. I know I will. But always, always a great show. I've seen Foreigner countless times. Never disappoints. Um, and and Jeff Pilson and Kelly Hansen, just wow. They they've really um, helped carry the torch those last few years. So uh, thank you, Mick. Oh, yeah. My pleasure, Mitch. Merci beaucoup. À bientôt. À la prochaine. Voilà. <laughs> Merci, bye-bye. Okay. Ciao. Cheers. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. And there you have it, folks, my interview with Mick Jones of Foreigner Do. Check him out this summer with White Snake and Jason's Bonham Led Zeppelin Evening, which will be an evening of great, great rock and roll all around. Listen, if you want hits between White Snake, the Led Zeppelin catalog, and Foreigner, you are going to have three hours of nothing but top 40 hits. It's going to be great. Uh, speaking of great and 40, I have got Ali Campbell of UB40 on the line. Of course, best known in America for their song Red Red Wine, which was, of course, a cover song. Uh, Mr. Niven, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the Mick Jones interview, but uh, Red Red Wine, Ali Campbell, UB40, definitely not metal. Um, any compelling stories about the band or any connection to you? Was that one of these bands that you listened to or enjoyed, or was that sort of like way out of the realm and sort of out of the circle? Well, it's interesting that uh, you introduce them that way, because um, for me, there's a blue-collar streak to all authentic rock and roll and reggae and it's interesting i mean back in the uh in the 60s there was a question of you know can white boys really play blues and 
that obviously moves on to can white boys really play reggae? And if there's an authentic sense of the blue collar to them, I believe they can. I believe they get the feel. I mean, you know, with the blues, we had, you know, Clapton and Savoy Brown and John Mayle and, of course, you know, the ultimate wannabe black guy, Brit, uh, Mick Jagger. Um, but, yes, I think white boys can play black music with with authenticity, and UB40 did that. Uh, part of the clue is the name itself, which, um, if I remember correctly, uh, comes from Unemployment Benefit Form Number 40. So they were all on the dole, they were all working class lads, and they were heavily into reggae. And Ali had a voice that was credible. Um, Obviously, they were slipstreaming a little bit the success of the police, um, but I found UB40 to be a little bit more credible than the police, you know, who uh, all dyed their hair platinum and, you know, were a little poppy. But these Birmingham boys got it. They had the ability to have the soul that was required. Um, and it was good enough for uh, Chrissy Hines. Um, I mean, I wonder if Chrissy had a thing for Ali because she took them out on their first tour. Um, she covered Red Red Wine as well uh, in their style and did a duet with Ali at one point. And I don't mean that euphemistically. I'm not assuming anything there, but uh, they did sing I Got You, Babe, together. Um, so, yes, UB40 were definitely on on, on my uh, radar screen. Um, I've always had an eclectic taste and if you're into UB40 I'd also suggest you know go out and look for the Peter Tosh concert that was recorded at the Hollywood Bowl in 1983 or go and check out a band like Toots and the Maytals um, if you're in, there's a, a, a recording that was recorded live in London in the early 70s that you should get a hold of but if you're into UB40 check those things out too and another band, I guess, from that era was English Beat. They also had that sort of similar kind of thing going on. The good yes, old. well, you know, it's um, we Brits are often called arrogant, and I think one of the reasons we're called arrogant is that we keep reminding Americans that if it weren't for us and our wannabe black aspect, uh, Americans would probably still be buying Pat Boone records. The English have always had a, a tremendous connection to black music. Yeah, and and what I find remarkable about UB40, because you know I'm 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 a fan of of my era where we discovered music on TV. You know, much music played it. It was part of the living room. It was part of the decor, and so therefore it was part of my my musical background. So I heard that song a lot, and it was only years later that I discovered that it was a cover of a Neil Diamond song. And so it, it's strange to me sometimes to think that a band's greatest hit is a cover song. And, and even the Beatles, to this day, people think that Twist and Shout is theirs, and it's not. Well, I mean, we, as, as we both well know, uh, the art of a cover is to make it yours. And I'd add another aspect to that is if you're going to look for material, find a song that you really like that maybe wasn't realized as well as it could have been by the original artist, so as people don't know it. Um, but you've got to invest your own personality and your own spirit into the recording. And if you do that, it's valid. 
Oh, that that I agree with, and of course, coming from the you know the hair metal or melodic rock world, I'll, I'll compare it a little bit to what Tesla did with that song "Little Susie," a cover from a band called PhD. But if you listen to the PhD version, you go, "Oh, that's, that's a cute song," and then you hear Tesla retake it, and of course, that was the whole gimmick: get a song that nobody knows, make it your own, like you said, and then turn it into, and of course. It has become one of their greatest songs. You cannot go to a Tesla show without them playing that song. And I guarantee 99% of the audience is thinking, what a great original Tesla song that is. So, Oh, there are still people today who think that uh, Once Bitten Twice Shy is a great white song. No, it's not. It's Ian Hunter. Right. And, of course, people uh, are, are listening to this thinking, what? Red Red Wine? Was, was Neil Diamond? What? What? <laughs> Right. Yeah. And, and so it, it's just a, it's fascinating how how sometimes an interpretation takes that song to the next level. And of course, uh, I'd be remiss not to mention Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll. Great cover by of the Arrows. It was written by Alan Merrill of the Arrows. And she just turned that and, and makes, basically built her career out of that one song. And it's a cover. So good for her. Good. Good. Well done. Yeah, well done. Good taste being uh, employed there to pick that song. The new album, of course, is uh, a real labor of love, and it features Ali, Astro, and Mickey, and they are revitalizing the uh, concept of cover albums. Uh, this time they cover Stevie Wonder's A Place in the Sun, Dennis Brown's How Could I Leave, Culture's International Herb, and a lot more. Uh, do check that out, and uh, while you're checking stuff out, check out my interview with the one, the only. Allie Campbell. We are speaking with Allie Campbell of the band UB40. The new album is called A Real Labor of Love, and it features also Astro and Mickey. Uh, Allie, great pleasure to talk to you. I have, of course, followed the band since the early 80s, being a bit older myself these days. Um, talk to me a little we're bit about... We're a bit older these days. Yeah, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting there. But, but it's, you know, it's so amazing to me uh, that a lot of the bands from back then, whether it's UB40 or whether it's Bon Jovi or whoever, they're still going, they're still a fan base. There, there was just something very magical about that time. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, but you know, when people ask me, you know, what's the secret to your longevity and how come you've, you know, you're still here after 30 years? Um, I think the real reason is that we chose reggae um, as our musical genre, you know. Um, when I started the band back in 1979, um, reggae was only like 11 years old, you know. It, it, reggae came about in about 1968. Before that, it was called Rocksteady, and before that, it was Scar, you know. So it was the youngest music form we could have chosen. Um, and I think, uh, and it's universally loved, reggae is, you know. And uh, like, unlike a lot of other musics, it hasn't um, unlived its own call, outlived its own call, if you like. Uh, you know, young people are still listening to reggae and, uh, you know, it hasn't become old-fashioned or anything. In fact, if you look at the pop music that's going on now, it's very much informed by reggae, more so than ever, you know. You've got Pharrell Williams, you know, doing reggae tracks and you've got um, Ariana Grande, you know, even Justin Bieber, you know, doing uh, reggae beats. Um, Sly Dunbar beats and the Bogle beat, basically, has taken over the world. Um so I think that's why we're still here because people love reggae, you know. Yeah, and of course, and of course, uh, not to discount it, but the great songs also that you keep that you produce are a good reason why you're still here. Um, talk to me about a real labor of love. 
back in the day, of course, you were involved in three of the Labor of Love albums by UB40. Uh, talk to yeah. me about grabbing this concept and moving it forward and the song selection. Okay, well, um, I mean, when we started the band, our original idea was to do a Labor of Love. Um, we didn't have the title then, but we wanted to show people why it was. I mean, the question we were most often asked by people was, why do we play reggae, you know? So we thought the obvious thing to do would be to play the, our versions of the songs that we grew up listening to and the songs that made us love reggae, you know. So um, that would uh, would have been the labour of love. Um, the first one we did was uh, sort of Red Red Wine and Many Rivers of Grey. It was basically um, the 60s, you know, we covered the 60s. It was, it was music that we grew up um, listening to as kids, you know. Uh, and basically what, what made us love reggae. And then uh, Labour of Love 2 and 3 were a continuation of that, you know, because they were very popular. I think we sold, like, 21 million of them. Um, and so because they were so popular, uh, we've been asked to do it for the, last, for the next 20 years. People are going, will you do another, la-? obviously, you know, record companies mostly, will you do another Labour of Love? But, um, we, you know, uh, we weren't in a hurry to do another one. But um, we thought that enough time had passed now and uh, we could bring back um, sort of songs that we were listening to in the 80s, you know, because in the 80s, reggae sort of turned a corner. Um, you had uh, the birth of electronic reggae, you know, where you, uh, like Slang Tang, those tracks, where they're using um, electric piano instead of bass. And that was a kind of a little revolution. So the 80s was quite exciting for reggae. And um, and we were, I mean, I was out in Jamaica myself quite a lot of that time. I, mean, I had a home there and studios and stuff um, for the 80s and 90s. And, um, you know, this new album is the songs that we were listening to after we were a band. Um, and they're the songs that made us continue to love reggae, you know. Uh, so this new, we call it a real labour of love just to differentiate from the other three, you know. Um and there's songs from the 80s that, that, you know, that smashed it in the reggae charts, um, but didn't necessarily cross over, you know, to uh, into the uh, mainstream. So we're doing exactly the same thing. We're trying to uh, get people to listen to the songs that we loved listening to in the 80s and, um, you know, see if they can go back to the originals and, you know, enjoy them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, talk to me about being reunited with Astro and Mickey. Sort of how do they complement what you do and how do they sort of add to the sound and just being able to work with them once again well mickey left when i left you know i had to leave my own band because of management difficulties it's old news now you know it's sort of nine years ago um and me and mickey kept, were carrying the flag for reggae you know doing what we do um and then four four years ago astro came and uh, rejoined our fold you know um because the other UV40, the, um, the, the ones that were left, you know, the dark side, as I call them, uh, you know, they made a country and western album or, or tried to make a country album and it was a disaster. And um, Astro didn't want to be part of that, so he came back, back with me and Mickey. And um, it was like putting on a pair of old boots, you know. Um, <laughs> we loved working together then and we, and we love working together now, you know. Um, and having Astro with us, it means that we can do, you know, uh, tracks like Right in the Kitchen and Wage of the Ball. 
Um, so we've got basically the, the original vocalists are in our band, you know, uh, the ones that were on all the hits and stuff. Um, and so we've been sort of on the road, really, for the last four years. They really have been. Um, you mentioned, of course, the old news of having to leave the band and, and, and the dark side. Was it disappointing to you that it got to a point where you had to leave and that you couldn't work it out and say, come on, guys, we have something, we've had something for 30 years, let's get this where it needs to be? Um, disappointing? Well, the thing it, it, yeah, it was very disappointing, and I felt very betrayed, you know, and it was an acrimonious split, and it remains so, you know. Um, I, when I left, I, I, I sort of gathered, started gathering evidence against the management, thinking that I could present that to the band, and then, that, you know, they'd get rid of the management. But um, unfortunately, they'd already, you know, started supporting the management before I even, you know, decided to leave. So, um, you know, I went out on my own, and that was fair enough as far as I was concerned. And then when they did the country album and Astro came back to us, we us, our, we thought we should call ourselves UB40, featuring Ali Astro and Mickey so that we could differentiate between us and them. Just because, that, you know, um, I felt that they were killing the legacy of the band. You know, um, I started UB40 to promote reggae music, you know, and to promote dub. Um, and it was kind of a, you know, a silly slap in the face to me for him to start doing a country record. And uh, a slap in the face to the fans, I thought, you know, the people that had supported us over 28 years. Um, but, you know, then they started suing me and, and you know, I, I had to defend myself, you know, at great cost. Um, and then, you know, nothing came of their court case against me. And, and that's the end of that, really. So... We sort of ignore them now and hope they go away. <laughs> yeah, and and it's particularly interesting that it's it's brothers fighting brothers. But um, let me let me move away from that and get to, to more positive stuff. You did, of course, yeah. uh, go out alone back in '95. You did Big Love, Running Free, 2007, etc. Um, talk to me about the solo albums and what were you trying to say on those, and how how does they sort of differentiate what you were doing? In UB40. Well, if you listen to my solo stuff, it does sound like UB40, you know. Um, basically, because I wrote all the tunes, you know, the, the 24 albums that I made with UB40, apart from the, um, the three Labour of Loves, you know, which were a project of covers, um, I wrote all the tunes, you know. So when I went and started doing it on my own, obviously it still sounded like UB40 because, you know, I was the voice of UB40 and and I wrote the tunes, so, you know, it's bound to sound like UB40, basically. Now that, of course, that you're back with Astro and Mickey, is there still room for solo albums, or do you want to move forward with UB40 featuring Ali, uh, Astro and Mickey? Yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. You know, we're having a great time of it. The, the, the fans have basically voted with their feet. You know, we're, we're selling out stadiums um, and, you know, big arenas, etc. Um and I think I've got the hottest reggae band on the road in the world at the moment. So, you know, where people say, is that, you know, is there any chance of um, reuniting with the old guys? You know, I'd, I'd never do that because we're in a much better position now than we've ever been, you know. And, you know, when I, when, when I decided to leave my own band, um, what happened really was I reinvented UB40, you know, and, uh, you know, that that happens with, with pop acts, you know. 
Um, they're constantly reinventing themselves. I didn't intend in, to reinvent anything, but, you know, inadvertently, I did. And uh, this is like the new UB40, if you like. Yeah, and it's nice to have a fresh start as well. Um, a couple of years back, of course, you were on New Zealand's Got Talent and you left the show. Uh, there was, uh, I'm, I'm curious about that because... You know, I've always been one to, to promote new music and promote fresh talent, but I've always found that some, well, you know, American American Idol are somewhat disingenuous. It's not about the talent. It's not about the person. It's it's really just about throwing some nonsense up on the screen. Uh, talk to me yeah, about I that. Ex- yeah, so, so talk I, to me about that experience. Uh, well, I, you know, I did it because I love New Zealand and we'd been going there since 1981, but never really had a chance to enjoy the country. You know, we were always working and in and out, usually on the way to, or on the way to Australia or, or, you know, coming from Australia on a tour. So when I was asked if I wanted to go to New Zealand for three months and work once a week, I thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Um, and, you know, I've, I suppose I was naive because I thought it was about um, finding talent, you know. And uh, I started taking it seriously and I was championing um, a Maori act because I thought, you know, being in the South Pacific, there'd there'd be some fantastic stuff going on. And there was, I was right. But um, the the Maori act that was, you know, basically took the roof off every time they were there and they were getting a million hits on their site. And there's only four million people in New Zealand, you know, so it, it was pretty obvious to me and to everyone watching the program that um, this Maori act should win. But um, when when the, the series sort of finished, uh, they came forth and um, I asked the assistant producer, you know, what happened there. You know, they were obviously the, the favourites and they should have won. And especially, she said, we were on the wrong channel. And uh, had we been on another channel, a brown face could have won. <laughs> and I went, what? Uh, and that was the end of me working at um, New Zealand's Got Talent, basically. Yeah, and it's just disappointing that those shows don't really promote what they foster. And, and anyway, it, it drives me exactly. nuts. And it was, you know, um, the kid who won the show, you know, was a young girl with a guitar and a dog, you know, from a farm, which is exactly what, um, you know, white New Zealand wanted, you know, so that's who won. Um, and uh, it was a bit a bit shocking, actually, you know, I didn't realise that that sort of stuff was still going on. Um, but it was, you know, it was fun doing it. Um, it was just that I didn't realise, I'm the same as you, you know, I... I now know that it's nothing to do with finding talent. It's about putting on a, an hour show, you know, for like family entertainment. Uh, it's got nothing to do with finding talent. N- not at all. And they also yeah, screw the know. talent too, because if you look, if you look at the at the fine print, it says that you win the prize, but it's an annu- an annuity for fifty years or whatever. So they get paid like a thousand dollars a year for fifty years, and you're like. Wow, so they don't even get the prize that they win. Bravo, people. Um, exactly, and you know, and all the acts, um, you know, Simon Cowell has fifty percent of their future earnings or whatever. You know, it's like it's all yeah, it's all very dodgy. Yeah, but um, uh, it was a lot of fun to do, and it was lovely being in New Zealand for that amount of time. You know, I had a chance to take my wife and kids out there, and we travelled around, and I've got a lot of friends out there anyway. So uh, you know, I, I can't complain. I had a great time, and. Uh, you know, I was paid to work one day a week for three months and stayed in a beautiful place in Waitamata Harbour in Auckland, you know. So, um, you know, and I was treated well. And it was, uh, 
Yeah, it was just a bit of a you know a damp squib. The uh, the actual program. Oh. <laughs> I wish I could be hired to do that. Um, what wasn't dodgy though is uh, your unplugged album of a couple years back, uh, UB40 featuring Ali Astro and Mickey Unplugged. You cover, of course, Purple Rain, I Got You, Babe, and, and Red Red Wine. Uh, quickly talk to me about covering a Prince song and, and what Prince meant, of course, um, to you and, 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 and to the public. And also, what was it like to sort of reimagine those songs in a, with new arrangements in this sort of acoustic thing? Because the, the Red Red Wine version is particularly poignant, I find. Yeah. Well, you know, that started off as a bit of a joke, really. Um we were promoting the Silhouette album um, on radio in England. And um, obviously, we're an 11-piece band, so when you get into little studios, we can't fit in them. So they were asking all the time for us to do live sessions and could we do it acoustically with just a few of us. Um, and so we did we did, we did. did them. We did about five of them and a couple of tracks each time. So I thought, well, we've got an acoustic album there. Why don't we do an unplugged? Ha, ha, ha. And... Uh, Universal loved the idea, and um, so we did. We made um, a reggae album with no bass, which is unprecedented. <laughs> uh, I think we came up with a new form of reggae called cuddly reggae, and uh, that's funny. Basically, it went down really well. Um, but it was, you know, it was just like an experiment, really. Um, um, and I think what's good about the unplugged is that you you hear things that you didn't hear on the original electric versions, you know. Um, I think more emphasis is on the, the vocals and the melodies and stuff. Um, so that was, you know, quite a fun project to do, and, and a lot of people are doing it now, you know. There's people on tour doing acoustic unplugged tours and stuff. So, uh, yeah, interesting. Um, I'm in, of course, Montreal, so talk to me a little bit about the North American market for, for UB40. Red Red Wine, of course, comes out. MTV, Much Music, Spin the Ever-Living Daylights out of it. It becomes sort of the band's signature song, even though it's not your song. Uh, talk to me about sort of that song and how it, it set the path for you in North America. Yeah, well, I mean, we released it in 1983 in England, and it went all over, uh, it went to number one there, and then all over the world it was number one. It didn't actually get to number one in America until five years later, you know, so it had two lives, and I think that's why people remember that that particular tune, you know, with UB40. Um, and people say, you know, oh, do you get tired of doing this? And the thing is that that was the number one for us, but it was, we were covering that. Not, uh, we didn't know it was a Neil Diamond song. We, we thought it was a Tony Tribe song, which is the original that we'd heard. Um, and nobody was as surprised, nobody was um, surprised, as surprised as us to find out it was Neil Diamond who wrote it. Uh, now, with um, Purple Rain, um, again, that was just a suggestion that came to me from Frank Bambini, the drummer with uh, Fun Loving Criminals. And he said, you know, he'd done um, a version of Purple Rain and would I sing on it? And I was thinking, what, what an unlikely cover, you know, reggae cover, um, Purple Rain. But when we did it, it became a bit of a favourite with the fans, you know, and we played it live. Um, and this was like four years before... Uh, Prince's Untimely Death, you know. Um, and it was really, it was because Frank Bambini's um, a Prince fanatic, actually. Uh, I mean, I loved Prince. I, I thought his stuff was great. I think his production was some of the best ever, you know. Um, and it was a great loss. 
but uh, yeah, the Purple Rain thing, uh, doing a reggae version of that, it actually uh, prompted me to, to make a, an album of covers called um, Great British Songs. Um, because I thought well, if we can make a good version of you know Purple Rain reggae version of Purple Rain, you know what else could I do? And so I, I took on the Stones and the Kinks and the Who and, <laughs> and All Right Now by Free and Baker Street and just songs that you wouldn't dream of you know there being reggae versions, and uh, and that went down really well as well. You know it just proves that you can you know, as long as it's a four four beat you can do a reggae version of it. You know. Yeah, you really can. Um, uh, I just want to get back to sort of the, the, the open wound here for a second. Uh, Robin and Duncan, of course, are brothers. Is there is there a possibility of, of reconciliation with them being brothers, or is it gone so far now that it, it just is the dark side and we're done? And I apologize yeah, I for the question. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's too much water's gone under the bridge, you know. Um, and like, as I said, I think musically, I'm in a much better position being, you know, with this, with, with my new band. Um, and as far as, you know, falling out with your brothers, uh, we were a band of brothers, as far as I was concerned, you know, so I fell out with five of them, you know. Uh, and, you know, that I'm happy as I am, you know. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I, I'd started UB40 to promote reggae, you know, so the... The only thing that's important to me is that we do we make great records and we do good shows, you know. And that all the rest is, you know, is them luck basically the dark side airing, you know, our dirty laundry in public, you know. And I'm not really, I'm I'm not part of that, you know. I, really, I just um, I'm ignoring them and hoping they go away, basically, <laughs> and just leave us to do what we do best, you know, which is to promote reggae. Yeah, and, and and I'll leave them. Uh, I'll leave the questions away. The, um, just real quick, a lot of bands. Uh, almost every day that I open up my my news feed, I see a band is calling a farewell tour, and we're done. We're done. What is sort of the the timeline for UB40 with you? Do you see yourself on like we've got a five year plan? Is this something you're going to do till you're eighty? Sort of, how do you see the next sort of five to ten years playing out for you in the band? Well, you know, like I said, we've been on the road now for four years more or less solidly all around the world, you know, um, all over America. And uh, I love touring. You know, I had an eight-year hiatus where I stopped touring. Uh, we, I was still playing um, shows, but I wasn't doing tours, you know. And I, I decided I really missed it, you know. I love touring. And it's a way of life, you know. It's not It's not like a job. It's, it's a way of life. And I love being on a big bus, you know, um, traveling around America, you know, doing the east and west coast and then going into the Midwest. And you know, it's just, it's what I do. It's what I've been doing since I was, you know, 20 years old. Um, and I don't see us slowing down while people are still buying our tickets, you know, and, you know, while we're still getting um, record contracts, um, I don't see us stuffing records either, making records. Um, you know, like I said, Reggae is universally loved, you know, and um, and UB40 is uh, very lucky because we've got um, you know a worldwide fan base, so we can we can rock up anywhere really. And because of the uh, you know the wealth of hits we had in the eighties and nineties, we had over forty top twenty hits, you know. So we we can do a show, and most people will know the songs, you know. 
So uh, we're kind of the, the perfect festival band, which is why we're concentrating on festivals at the moment and, uh, you know, we do state fairs and things in, in the States. So uh, now I don't see us slowing down. Um, we've just come back. We, we spent Christmas and Antigua and then at New Year in Turks and Caicos. We've just come back from the Middle East. Um, we're soon to go to South Africa and we're going to be in Greece and Holland and Norway and back to the West Coast. We start in July in Vegas. So, you know, um, the year's, you know, filling up nicely and uh, we're just going to carry on doing what we do. And doing it well. Yeah. Um, And and I'll start wrapping up with this. Uh, You you just mentioned that, of course, you can go out there and you can play the hits and people know the songs, which is very true. So then what compels you to put together a collection like Silhouette or or bother doing the Unplugged or coming up with a real labor of love? Why not just say, hey, we're UB40, we're coming to your town, you're going to hear Red Red Wine and whatever else we do, come and have a party. Why? Why? That's exactly what we. That is. That is exactly what we say. You know. Okay. I mean, word for word, almost. We say we're coming to party, so come and party with us. You know, and we're not self-indulgent. We wouldn't. We wouldn't turn up and and play. You know, a new album or a new set of stuff that people hadn't heard. You know, we're uh, too long in the tooth for that. We know that people pay to hear Red Red Wine and Can't Out Falling in Love and Kingston Town. You know, and all those, all those hits. And you know, whenever we we've got a new album to promote we'll put in these four tracks from the new album you know in a greatest hit set um and that's what people get and we generally do party we are the party band of the 80s and 90s and we're carrying on into the uh the the this 21st century absolute pleasure talking to you and and, and so glad to see you back with ali uh, i'm sorry with astro and mickey and uh thank you thank you for your time today great much much appreciated cool. no problem no problem Big love to everybody out there. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah, man. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. Welcome back to what has been my top 40 of the 80s episode. We had Foreigner, of course, UB40. Both bands uh, just made an incredible impact in, in the 1980s and uh, continue to do so. But... Um, you know, recently we've had a lot, a lot of talk about farewell tours. Is Kiss going to do a farewell tour? Is Judas Priest going to do a farewell tour? Elton John is doing one, Leonard Skinner, and, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And so, you know what? I thought I'll give these guys here a bonus interview. This will be fun. So I got blues legend. Yes, that's right. The blues. Eddie the Chief Clearwater on, um, on the line. And for those who don't know, Eddie has been around the scene since, well, since longer than I can remember, quite frankly. And uh, he is 83 years old currently. And I asked him, are you going to be doing a farewell tour? Are you saying goodbye and, and packing it up? And of course not. Eddie, at 83 years old, said, no, 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 no. I am going to make a new album and I'm going to tour. So I thought with all this you know, rigmarole about farewell tours and who's going to be left in five years and, oh, my God, the whole world is ending. I figured, you know what, let's talk to some guy who's just not going to throw in the towel ever. And so I present to you, as a special bonus interview, the one, the only, guitarist, bluesman, Eddie the Chief Clearwater. I hope you enjoy. 
Here's Eddie. We are speaking with Eddie, the chief Clearwater American Chicago blues musician, guitarist, and so much more. Eddie, a great, great pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, Thanks, Mitch. Thank you. Absolutely. Let, let me let me start off with what is is the most striking to me. Uh, you were born in 1935, which puts you at 83 years old, and we are doing this interview today because you are making a new album for for 2018. Um, talk to me about what sort of keeps you going. You know, at some point, you not just want to say, "Hey, I'm retired. I'm hanging up the guitar. It's enough." But you keep going. So, so talk to me about that sort of desire to keep making music. Well, I tell you, Mitch, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, and I figure, why should I quit now if I if I look what I'm doing and seems like. It seems like a few people like it also, so I want to go out and uh, entertain the public and play play the best blues I can play and uh, and some rock and roll and hope hope someone enjoys it. So that's that's my ambition for doing it. As long as I feel good, I want to do good. Yeah, absolutely. Now the the last album was uh, Soul Funky in 2014. Um, Correct. Talk to me about a little bit about that album and. Sort of what do you plan on, on saying, for the lack of a better word, with the new album? Well, uh, with the new album, I'm working on a whole bunch of originals. So I want to put as many originals on there as possible. Possibly the, the entire album will be original. I, I may do one uh, song. I may, I may do one Chuck Berry song just for, as a tribute to Chuck Berry because he was one of my greatest uh, inspirations. So uh, I, I may do one one cover tune, but the rest I definitely want it to be all originals. So I just want to bring out the best that I can find within myself to bring out. And speaking of the live album, I just uh, my wife gave me the idea. I was uh, they were playing my birthday party at a club called Space in Evanston. So my wife said, "We've well, been talking about doing a live album. What do you, do, what do you think of just doing it live on stage at Space?" You know. And I said, oh, that's a good idea. My birthday was coming up. So I called up the studio and made arrangements. As a matter of fact, there's a studio inside of the club. So I, I just called them up and made arrangements to set up and uh, record me live during my concert for my birthday. So that's what happened with that. So it came out. I, I put it out on my label on Clifton Records. So it's a... Uh, yeah, it came out great. Um, talk to me a little bit about your guitaring style because... You're left-handed, and you started off sort of with a right-handed guitar that you flipped over, and and you taught yourself. Talk talk to me a bit about your progression and how it started, and 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 that unique sort of tone and characteristic that your playing has. Well, yes, uh, just naturally I'm left-handed. So at that time, there, there was no left-handed guitar available that I knew of, that I knew of. So I said, well, if I play it, I got to play it left-handed. So I picked it up upside down, and I've been playing that way ever since. Needless to say, after I started playing, I discovered Otis Rush (laughs) and also Albert King and also Jimi Hendrix. I said, well, I guess I'm in pretty good company with those guys. I said, I don't don't feel so strange anymore being left-handed. So... uh, so I've been playing that way ever since. You mentioned both uh, Chuck Berry and uh, Jimi Hendrix. 
Um, how do you view those two guitars? Was Jimmy just sort of a, a blues guitarist that just sort of turned the Marshalls up a little louder? Or how do you sort of qualify his playing and then, of course, Chuck Berry's playing? Well, Jimmy Hendrix, well, he was, he started out as a blues player, blues and R&B, playing blues and R&B. So then he just went a whole different direction at, at some point. That's when he came up with the rock thing, you know. But he, basically, he started out as a blues musician back in Seattle, Washington. So he uh, just ventured from there and uh, come up with his own, own, own thing, yes. And then Chuck Berry, speaking of Chuck Berry, he, he's, you might as well say he invented rock and roll because he was one of the really, really innovators of rock and roll. That's when it was called rhythm and blues at that time. <laughs> but Chuck, you know, it was interpreted later on as as rock and roll. And but I, I still don't think he got the credit that he really deserved because he he really put rock and roll on the map, so to speak. He he really did. And and if you look at a lot of the bands that came after, whether it's the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or or anybody right. who was influenced by them. Uh, they all exactly. took sort of his chord progressions and his way, right? I mean, it, it really was. That's right. Yeah. yeah, he wrote the book, so to speak. Yeah, there's no way around playing rock and roll without playing some of Chuck Berry's licks. You know, it's yes. like blues. It's hard to play blues without playing some licks that was done by BB King. So it's just that's 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 what you call law. It's just it's written really. And BB BB is so great. Um, the Chicago blues scene, uh, very famous, sort of sort of the the scene. You know, you, you even think uh, of it in the movies. You know, the Blues Brothers, and they all talk about Chicago. Right. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about the blues scene in Chicago when you joined it in the fifties, and sort of how it's progressed now. And and then also we'll talk in general about the blues scenes and how because it sort of went underground for a little bit, I guess, in the sort of eighties, nineties, and now it, it did. Yeah, it, it, it came right back. On, yeah, yeah. So let's the eighties it went underground. Yeah. So Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, no, let's 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 start at the fifties. Talk to me about the scene and the vibrant scene and 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 just what it was like, sort of, be part of the Chicago, the Chicago blues scene at that time. Well, in the fifties is when I came to Chicago, September of nineteen fifty. And uh, when I walked into blues clubs, which my uncle introduced me to a few clubs, that's who invited me to Chicago in the first place, just for you, blues and get a chance to end a mangle and play with some blues people. And there were people in Chicago at that time by the name of Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Jimmy Reed, Elmo James, and John Lee Hooker. They were all here playing blues at that time from one night to the next night uh, in different clubs on the west side or the uh, south side. And you could just go from club to club each night and see different people performing. Like J.B. Huddle, you know, like I said, Elmo James. Then you go see Muddy at a different club. You could see Alan Wolf at a club. And then later on, Otis Rush came on the scene and so did Magic Sam. And then, then I got to hear what, and in that early beginning, I got to see them alive, playing a lot of different clubs, you know, just like the uh, club that I seen uh, Magic Sam for the first time at the Blue Flame, 
which was like two blocks from my house. And I heard it on the radio that Magic Sam was going to be there that coming weekend. So then I made sure I got a seat right down front of the stage before he even went on stage. And I sat there and just listened to him the whole night until he broke a string that night. And he didn't have any extra strings. <laughs> and that's how I got introduced to Magic Sam. He broke a string on the first set at the end of the first set. And he announced over the mic, he said, I, I don't have any extra string. Anybody got a string that I could get? So I seen him when he broke the string, but I didn't say anything to him. So when he walked off stage, I walked up to him and I said, you need an extra, you need an E-string? He said, oh, I need an E-string, but I don't have any extra strings with me. So I said, I live two blocks from me. I could go home and get you a string. He said, oh, would you please? That would really be a help to me. So I ran home and got two E-strings. I brought them back and I handed them to Magic Sam. I said, here, here, here's two E's in case you break another one. So he said, oh, thank you. And what's your name, by the way? I said, Eddie Clearwater. He said, oh, I've heard of you. you know, I'm glad to meet you. So that's how we met. Yeah, great story. Um, I want to talk about the Blues Hall of Fame. 2016, you were you were inducted as as an um, as a performer. Uh, talk to me about that recognition and what it means for the the Hall of Fame to to say, "Hey, you belong with the greats." You know, I tell you, it felt like a dream. It felt like a dream come true. It felt like I was dreaming that it was happening, but come to find out, it was really happening. <laughs> you know. I said, I can't believe this, but I I really accepted it with pride. I'm very thankful for that. Because uh, coming from where I came from, the Deep South, as a, as a country boy, a farmer, I said, well, if I don't go any farther than this, I've already beat the odds. And I, I thank God for that. I was very thankful for it, and I was, it was really appreciative. Yeah, it's such a great honor. Now, we mentioned that the uh, 80s and 90s, there was a bit of a drop-off in the interest for the blues. Um, what do you think accounts for the revival that we've had? Because the more we go, the more we see cities with their own blues festival, the more we see even right. younger kids picking up the guitar and playing uh, the blues. Um, sort of explain to me why you think it had this this incredible drop-off and why we're seeing this resurgence in 2018. The reason it had the big drop-off is because of disco. That was an area that, where disco really took over. And everybody was going out to disco clubs and uh, what, what we called them back then was record spinners. People playing rec- phonograph records, you know, as opposed to hiring bands. So you, you could just hire one person and play that one disc jockey to sit there and spin records all night. So he could play anybody's record. And with the uh, with the technology of the uh, sound equipment, it it, it it could sound so great until there's no way you can make it sound any better with the equipment that they have. So people just went in that direction for a good while. And then all of a sudden people started saying, well, Oh, I miss live entertainment. I miss seeing a band on the stand performing these songs as opposed to hearing the records of it. So that's when it started to surge and come back. And that's when the festival started to to escalate and become bigger and bigger. And just like this one at Donna Connor, uh, Quebec, that I played a couple of times, I played it. Yeah. It's called the Donna Connor Festival, which is a good festival, a very nice festival. 
Yeah, so, uh, so that's why it spread worldwide. The same thing in Europe and uh, South America. I've been to South America, Asia, and um, a whole lot of different places out of the country, like Brazil and uh, and they, like you said, young people are really catering to the blues much, much more than ever, which is a good thing. It's, it's headed in the, the right direction. And I predict that it's going to get much bigger than what it is now. Because it, it's going to spread more and more, which is a good thing for the, for the musicians and the, uh, well, I, the, I, the entire industry. Oh, I agree. And... Um... It's great for the musicians, and that—that's by the way what I like about the blues, and even some of the you know the more classic rock is that it actually takes musicians to play these instruments and, and get these sounds. It's not just a computer that you plug in. Um, exactly. Well, in fact, give me your your thoughts on that. Um, the music scene, of course, has changed. You mentioned disco, and we started getting into loops and drum beats and, and drum machines. Right. Um, talk to me sort of about the more organic or the more, you know, um, what I call real music compared to these sort of computer-generated sounds. Do, do you find that, uh, is it music to you? Is it, is it, you know, just give me a comment on that. Well, you might say it's a combination, uh, an imitation of music, but the real music is nothing better than you hear a, a musician standing on stage with with this instrument, and he could play the same song that he recorded on the record. He could play it ten or twenty different times, and he'll play it different, a little different, every time. The reason for that is he feels different every time he plays, and he's playing what's what's coming from his mind and from his heart and from his soul, because he may be in a different mood each time. It's like if you're B.B. King, do the thrill is gone. If he did it 50 times in a row, chances are he would either add something or take something away from the time he did it before, because he's playing according to what he feels. And that's how, that's how the great sounds can be originated, because... You don't just play mechanically the exact same note and bend it the same way, because you don't feel the same way every time you play it. And we'll we'll finish with this today. The uh, you you do have some shows coming up. You're you're going to play some live shows in in 2018. Just quickly talk oh, yeah. to me. Talk to me about those and sort of what can folks expect to see if they come out and see uh, one of your shows. Well, you can expect. As much energy that I have left, I will be able to put it out, and I'll be gladly shared with the audience. So I'll be running around. Plus the new album we're working on that. I'm just working with songs every day, getting them together. We're going to have a rehearsal within two weeks for the for the purpose of the new album. So wish me luck with that too. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. When do you think the album will actually be out? Is it something that you're hoping to get sort of in September, October, or, or yes, sooner? Yes, I'm looking at September, October, before the holidays come up here. Oh, that's going to be I'm great. Looking at it for that time, if I can, uh, if we can get it down smooth enough. I'm sure you will. It'll it'll, it'll be fantastic. Okay. Uh, Eddie, this has been a great pleasure speaking with you today. I absolutely loved it. Been a pleasure. Absolutely, you, and uh, please come come to Montreal. Come and come and play something here. We've got great festivals, and it would be great to see you live. 
I definitely come to Montreal for more than one reason because I like the smoked meat that they have there. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, hey, we're, we've got the great smoked meat, but we've also just got generally great restaurants. I mean, this is one of the greatest cities to eat in, I, I think, personally. But hey, absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's just the whole atmosphere of Montreal. It's just fantastic to me. It's a great city. Yes. Yeah. As we say up here, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much. I appreciate this. Thank you. Cheers, Eddie. Say hi to everybody for me, too. Absolutely will do. Merci. Bye-bye now. Sure, bye-bye. Well, that was certainly fun. A big thank you to Eddie, the chief at Clearwater, 83 years old and still going strong, still wanting to make a new album and tour. I'm barely scratching 50, and I'm ready to retire. So, now... The Big Reveal. The song I played on a couple of uh, episodes ago was by the band Great White. Many of you tweeted me at Mitch Lafon and guessed it. The song is called Sister Mary, and it appeared on their 1999 Can't Get There From Here album. But the version I played you dated back to the 80s. And I've got a note from Alan Niven, our co-host on the front of the episode here, to explain the track. And he said, you know, when I heard Foreigners, I Want to Know What Love Is, I figured it needed an answer. A sort of, I think this is what love might be. So he goes on to say, I wrote it about my ex, who I almost instantly came to find out. Yada, 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 was not the loving kind, and thus was far from deserving such an accolade. So, we held it off the Psycho City album, considered it for the Sail Away album, but then again, held it off. But, it played well, even as a rough, bored mix, and once the anger subsided, it amuses me to think that it could have been our Layla, etc., 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 and so now he shared it, you heard it, and so here it is, once again, from somewhere in the 1980s. It is Great White doing the song Sister Mary as first realized, thought of, conceived, way before the folks at Portrait Sony got a hand of it and said, hey, let's do it for this album in 1999. This is the, I guess, 15 years in advance or, you know, at least 10 or 12 years in advance version of Great White's Sister Mary. Thank you for listening. Please check me out on Twitter at Mitch Lafon. And now we cue the music.